Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and right now your guide to coronavirus as seen through the eyes of UCL's staff, students and research. Over the past three months, I can't believe I actually just said that, three months, I've been speaking to people from a whole range of disciplines, from engineers to public health experts to historians of the Middle Ages, to try and understand every aspect of this global pandemic and its impacts. This week's episode is slightly different. It's all about being proud to help during this pandemic. In support of the university's UK's hashtag WeAreTogether campaign, we're sharing how UCL staff and students responded to the pandemic, not only with impactful research, but also by working for frontline services. Today, we hear from a professor, a vice provost of health even, who heard the call and went back to the wards, and from a medical student who gave up her graduation celebration and threw herself into stressful days and nights in hospitals at the height of COVID. My first guest this week is Professor of Medicine and Vice Provost for Health at UCL, David Lomas. Now, when coronavirus hit, a lot of researchers from the UCL community used their knowledge and expertise to help out. We've heard, for instance, about the breathing devices or the ways to assess viral spread here on this podcast. But for David, it was altogether different. He was a respiratory physician back in the day. And for him, when the NHS called, there was no other course of action than to return to the wards. My other guest that I'm speaking to was a UCL medical student. So welcome, Sophie Brack. And in absentia, can I also welcome Abdul Elmi, who would have been with us today were it not for the fact that he is delayed on the wards. And I also should say Dr. Sophie Brack and Dr. Abdul Elmi, because they graduated ahead of time so that they could join the front line. Sophie worked in ITU at the Royal Free Hospital at the height of the pandemic and Abdul at UCLH, which is where he is uh, today. So let me turn to David, first of all. With your doctor's hat on, walk us through the decision to return to patient-facing work. What was the opportunity and what made you want to take it? Thanks, Viv. So uh, we were in unprecedented times. If you remember back uh, three months, the predictions from the Imperial Modelling from the SAGE group were that we were going to have about 250,000 deaths uh, from uh, coronavirus. It was going to sweep through the country. Uh, The health service was going to be overwhelmed. You might remember stories of Hyde Park being turned into a temporary mortuary. Um, and so at, at that time, uh, we needed all hands to the pumps. And, and UCL, I think, rallied brilliantly. Um, we released our staff. We, we were, I think, the first university to, to recommend that our clinical scientists, our clinicians, our research staff should be released from their UCL roles to return to the front line to help. Everyone needed to help. Everyone needed to, to get there and do their bit. And for me, um, I, I really couldn't ask people to do that without doing it myself. So it was it was a no-brainer. Uh, it was time to, uh, to to go back and return to respiratory medicine. I should say that I'd, I'd never really stopped doing respiratory medicine, but but the the challenge here was to put yourself in harm's way and to volunteer to return to the front line. So how difficult was it, David? Because you, you know, it's quite a long time since you've been on the wards. Was it just was it just like Not riding hard. a bike? <laughs> Well, not, not quite as long. So, so I, I'm, even though I'm Vice Provost Health and even though I look after the medical school and, and the School of Life and Medical Sciences, I still do clinical practice. I don't do a great deal. 
I do about a month a year of clinical service at UCLH, and I do a clinic once a month at the, at the Royal Free. So I, I still practice respiratory medicine. Um, the, the challenge here was to go really to put yourself in harm's way to do what a respiratory physician does at, at, a, at a time of need. And and I want you to know, listeners, that of, of course he looks twenty three with a light behind him. But you are you are older, David. I mean, when we'll come to Sophie, you know, perhaps people who are younger don't worry quite so much about the risk of infection. But certainly, older people do. Was that on your mind? Yeah, absolutely. So Sophie and I are at different ends of the spectrum, I think, in different different ends of our our, our careers, if I may say that, Sophie. Um, so so I, I, I returned back to work on the CPAP unit. It, it had been a rapidly constructed unit at UCH. Um, it was the step down from ITU, if you will, from people who were getting better. And it was to prevent the poorly people getting to ITU. And it was to use the, the device that, that UCL helped pioneer, the UCL Ventura device, and other CPAP devices to assist with breathing to stop people progressing and requiring uh, expensive, difficult, high resources of, of ITU. So, so I returned to the ward. Um, I was actually on over the week, Easter weekend, which was the peak of the surge. And um, I have to say that it was fabulous. The, the, team, the team spirit and the camaraderie were just outstanding. The nurses, the support staff, uh, the administrators, the junior doctors, just brilliant. But I did pause and look around and thought, well, crikey, Lomas, you're, you're the oldest person here. And coronavirus does affect the aged. So there is a bit of a risk. So in some senses, I mean, obviously, there's a, you know, there's tales of tragedy unfolding all around you. But in some senses, working on that CPAP initiative must have been thrilling. Yeah, it was actually. So, so my role in, in this UCL Ventura was really to, to steer it through the approvals process and to persuade the Cabinet Office that they really wanted to invest in this device um, at a time when, you might remember, they were focused on a ventilator challenge. So, so their gap analysis has said what they wanted was ventilators, however makeshift, and you might remember the early ones were really, really makeshift, whereas we said, actually, that's not what you need. What you really need are mass production of devices to keep people away from ventilators, i.e. the CPAP device. And when we started that particular journey, um, I can tell you that, that, there were, that you couldn't even use CPAP for coronavirus patients. So, so, so we have. So, CPAP is something. In just in case people don't know, is you would normally use CPAP to. Uh, it was typically given to people who have uh, problems uh, snoring and who stop breathing during the, the the night. So they're given these devices to wear that have air at a kind of slightly increased pressure pushed in to stop them snoring and actually to stop this sudden respiratory arrest that they have. But this is what was being developed differently for these patients. You're correct. Absolutely right. So, so, so it used to go, it used to be oxygen therapy. And if you failed an oxygen therapy, straight to ITU and a ventilator. And that was the NHS guidelines. And we felt, uh, Mervyn Singer, um, uh, Becky Shipley, Tim Baker, uh, Andy Cowell, Mercedes F1 team, felt that actually having this intermediate stage, developing a device, developing a CPAP device that we could do in mass production uh, would actually allow people to be treated in an intermediate way. It's a step between oxygen and and a, and a ventilator. And at the time, um, the government um, and the community didn't think that's what they needed. They thought they needed ventilators. So our, our, the CPAP making device was an achievement. Actually getting the NHS to recognise that they needed it and have adopted was an extraordinary challenge. 
and then getting the government to fund it was was, was quite remarkable. So it is really quite an astonishing story. And then to be on the unit where that device was being used w- was quite a thrill. You have an overview, David, of all the UCL teaching and non-teaching staff. How have they responded to the wider efforts to stop COVID? It's been truly, truly terrific and actually quite humbling, to be entirely honest. Um, everyone pivoted from their normal work to focusing on the challenges of coronavirus. Um, we have hundreds and hundreds of projects that were set up from scratch to focus on coronavirus. Um, we've, we've been given the highest amount of money from UKRI of any university in this country for our work on, on coronavirus. And we've now raised about a million pounds in external uh, funding for the coronavirus fund to try and help that research effort. So not only have we pivoted our research to try and help the understanding of the diagnosis and the treatment of coronavirus, but also our staff have have stepped up remarkably. Uh, People have been selfless in the way that they've given of their time and of of themselves. And when we hear from Sophie, again, the the challenges for a new medical student to go onto the wards are huge. To take a deep breath and to step into an unusual environment, that's a huge, huge undertaking. And our our medical students did it, our scientists did it, our clinical scientists uh, and clinicians did it, and, and our research nurses did it as well. So the whole community really, really stepped up. And once to, one anecdote, if I may, uh, so when I was on the CPAP unit, the family liaison uh, uh, nurse who I was working with, Jenny, who was superb, actually is an MS nurse. She spends a day in the MS clinic. The people who helped me put on full PPE, the, the so-called the donning, the donning and doffing, putting on and taking off of full PPE, the donning people were actually um, speech therapists from the ENT uh, department or from the Ear Institute. Um, so, so, so people came from all walks of life to contribute. Our junior doctors were neurologists who'd come from Queen Square to try and help on the respiratory unit. So, so really quite unprecedented times and an unprecedented and truly brilliant response from UCL colleagues. So Sophie, let's turn to you now, because you were at the other end of that spectrum. Uh, how did you end up at the Royal Free? Yes, and thank you, Vivian, very much for having me here today. I graduated from UCL Medical School in March. Um, we had our final exams in the middle. Or sorry, I graduated in April, but we had our finals in the middle of March. I found out that I passed final year towards the end of March, and then I started at the Royal Free four days after getting those final results. I think after everything was kind of up in the air. I was supposed to go on elective to Australia in April, and then I was supposed to return to UCL in June for another month of teaching. But it became very apparent towards the end of March that none of this was going to be possible. So I had to start thinking about what I would do for the next few months. And I think there's never really any question that I wanted to go back into the clinical environment. Um, Just As David mentioned, there's just so much in the media and on the news about how horrible the situation was and how hard the country was going to be struck by it. And I just wanted to be a part of that. I just wanted to help as much as I could in any capacity or form. So as soon as they announced that the Royal Free was looking for volunteers, I signed up and I ended up working in the ITU department there. So that is being like thrown into the deep end big time. I mean, you couldn't be in a more high pressured environment. What was it like? Yes, definitely. I worked in ITU for the end of March and the entirety of April. So very much throughout the entire peak. 
And I just remember my first day in the department just being completely shocked because I'd seen the news reports about how bad coronavirus was. I'd read all about it, but I don't think anything can really prepare you for going into the ITU in a central London hospital and just seeing the hundreds and hundreds of patients who are intubated, who are heavily sedated, and just every single one of them has a COVID positive status. It was very shocking. It was almost quite emotional. So I just really wasn't quite ready of seeing, of, of seeing over 100 patients who are all intubated and COVID positive. And it was certainly a scary sight on the first day. I felt very much intimidated by it all. But being a healthy young person, and I, I, I was living by myself, I wasn't living with anyone who needed shielding. I was aware that I was in a good position to help on ITU. And so I was happy to put myself forward for that role. Can I just go back to our grandfather here, <laughs> David? Just, that'd yeah, that'll be you. Uh, I know him very well, listeners. Don't worry. Um, I, <laughs> I, I just wonder. So you've got had long, long experience of respiratory medicine. You've seen many, many, many people with uh, severe pneumonias in ITU. Was this like anything that you had ever experienced in your career as a respiratory physician? No, this was this was really unprecedented. And, and my sense was very similar to Sophie's, to be honest. So, so not only was it was the sheer numbers of people coming in all at once, which was extraordinary. The challenge to the system of dealing with a huge spike of, of patients all arriving at once and being unwell. And also it was a disease that, that we'd never seen before. So, so you will have heard uh, that people present with cough and fever and most people have mild disease. And of course, that's, that's true. When they come into hospital, they're, they're striking in that people are very short of oxygen, probably because they have lots of little clots in the lungs, uh, so-called mitral thrombosis. So you, they're really dependent on, on, on oxygen. And then there's a group of people, and Sophie will have seen this from the, from the ITU setting, who develop a cytokine storm syndrome, who release huge amounts of cytokine and then flood their, flood their, their lungs with, with fluid. And they're, they're desperately sick. So we can recognise three different components of this disease, none of which we've seen before. And, and frankly, there were no guidelines to, to know how to treat it. And if I'm being entirely honest, in that Easter where we had no guidelines, I was using Spanish guidelines for anticoagulation, that's to break down the clots. And I was making up my own guidelines to, 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 to use steroids for people with the cytokine release syndrome. And, and that's what chest physicians do. Chest physicians use large doses of steroids. And interestingly, the, the recent study from the recovery trials showed that dexamethasone was actually useful in that, in that group of people. But we were flying blind. We'd not seen it before. We'd not seen the disease before. We'd not seen this pattern of, of, of symptoms and signs before. And we had no proven therapies. So we were, we were making it up as we went along. Sophie, how did UCL support you during this very difficult time? I think UCL support um, firstly comes from all the years previously. I do feel like I was quite well prepared to head into this environment. Um, I felt that I was taught the necessary skills to help me along the way. But during the actual pandemic, I felt that the most important thing that UCL did was just to have open channels of communication. We had a forum on which we could talk directly with people from the medical school, um, even um, our director, Professor Deborah Gill. And we were constantly updated on what was happening within the medical school and how they were handling the situation. I also felt like an important thing that they did was to not actually put pressure on students to go and work in the hospital or to go and volunteer. They made it very, very clear that this was your own choice and that they would support you no matter what you chose to do. 
And I think this is important because I think a lot of my colleagues who weren't able to go into the hospital environment, say because they were living with a family member who is vulnerable and who they needed to shield, definitely had some guilt about that. And I think it was very good on the university's part to make it clear that whatever you chose to do was a good option for you and that there was no right answer in this situation. David, How did UCL support the students more generally, particularly the medical ones, and particularly actually the doctors as well, who were returning to duties? And we're already seeing that uh, PTSD and some severe mental health problems arising in those who went back to these very intense days of frontline duty. Yeah, absolutely right. Everything happened really quickly. Um, so uh, at the outset, we tried very hard to actually facilitate people going back to work. Um, I did write to all the chief execs and pointed out that there was a duty of care to our medical students like Sophie, that we expected them to be looked after, that uh, we expect them to have PPE as, as appropriate, and we expect them to be kept out of harm's way, uh, although that's, that's, that's difficult in the sort of setting that Sophie describes. So, so we we try to do the the legal, the medical, the um, the aspects that look after care. But as people have returned, we do recognise what you describe in terms of the, the the people who've seen terrible things and are trying to cope with returning to normality, whatever normality may be like. And and um, our our, um, our our the office of the vice provost health have a training uh, training limb run by uh, Colby Veneri. Benari and Colby has been uh, setting up training courses or courses for people who want to talk through the experiences they've had to try to come to terms with them so that they can move on and return back to their life. One more thing that I also wanted to add in which in how the university and the hospital has supported um, us, which also kind of surprised me was I, I felt like we were very well prepared to go into our departments. So with me joining ITU, I very much thought that it would be a case of straight into the action because I joined the end of March we were very much in the height of it and I very much just expected to be thrown in what actually happened was that we had a whole day of teaching about how ITU works um, a little bit of a reminder of how to take observations in ITU and what the patients are like we got a proper one-hour session on how to don and doff our PPE and how to wear it appropriately and then we had about two days of shadowing in ITU So I was very pleasantly surprised by this because I very much expected to be thrown into the deep end, but I did feel like they really did take the time to teach us, to allow us to shadow and to really get us feeling comfortable for going into this environment. And I thought that was a very nice thing. You're listening to Coronavirus, the whole story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, do feel free to email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. And whilst you're at it, we'd love it if you could find a spare five minutes to fill out our survey. The link to that can be found wherever you downloaded this podcast. So let's return to you both uh, in your uh, wards. We heard way back in episode one of this podcast series how different working on the front line during coronavirus has been for medical professionals. And what uh, I was going to ask you, David, first of all, is what was it from your past experience that helped you most? I mean, is it a bit like when doctors 
come across an emergency in the street, for instance, even if they haven't been involved in A&E work for years, there's a level of training that just kicks in and some of it's automatic. Yeah, that, that's right, actually. And, and it's it's about pattern recognition and knowing what to do when you see a certain um, pattern of signs and, and, and symptoms. But it's also teamwork. And I think that that's what I'd like to stress, so that it's not just uh, me or, or, or Sophie or any of the ITU consultants or nurses or physiotherapists. It's everybody working together. And, and it was that camaraderie that pulled the NHS through. It was a willingness of everyone to go that extra mile and to work together. And I, what I would say is that I, I shouldn't say this, perhaps, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of the most memorable things I've ever done because we were pitched into a situation we didn't know what was what was happening. <clears throat> we didn't know the personal risks, as we discussed earlier on. I, I am in my late fifties now, so there is a there is a risk to to, to, to being there in terms of uh, in terms of getting getting being infected. But it but it was everyone pulling together, uh, everyone being under the cosh, that sort of wartime spirit that was really quite remarkable. Sophie, how did your medical training prepare you? Was it helpful? Did you do these things automatically that you've been trained for? I think yes and no. To some extent, any of the knowledge that you learned in medical school, any of the hard science knowledge, was completely useless in this situation because, as we mentioned earlier, no one really knew how to treat this condition. Uh, the pathophysiology was still quite unknown. So... It was just something, there was a lot of confusion around it from a medical perspective. But I think something that UCL teaches you very well is communication skills, both with patients and with other colleagues. And I think this was very much a situation where communication was so important. Many of the patients on ITU were intubated, and so you weren't necessarily able to talk with them. But communication with your colleagues, I found so important. I was a member of the proning team on some days. So explain what a proning team is. So um, a proning team is a team that turns a patient over from their back to their front or from their front to their back. And it's been shown in research, or at least suggested, that turning a patient over every 12 hours can improve oxygenation of the lungs because it recruits more lung space. So it was one of the things that we tried to do in order to help patients um, get as much oxygen as they possibly could. So every 12 hours, we would turn the majority of the patients over from their back to their front or their front to their back. The thing about coronavirus, though, is that it's been shown that it, has quite, it can have quite a severe impact on patients who are on the heavier side. So some of these patients were um, a bit heavier than usual. So it required kind of a team of six or seven doctors to turn them over. And there's just a lot of requirement for communication, a lot of counting down together, a lot of knowing what your role is. And so there was definitely a lot of teamwork involved, a lot of communication necessary. But this was something that, as David mentioned, I also thoroughly enjoyed. It was the first time, um, I'm, although I'm very early in my career, it was just incredible to see everyone work together so much. I very much felt that any hierarchy almost disappeared and we are just very much one team. Whether you were a medical student or a junior doctor or a consultant, we were very much all working together for a common aim. And there's something really enjoyable and certainly very memorable about that. Fantastic. And did you make a decision there and then to go into ITU or are you going to go for another specialty? I am hoping to go into obstetrics and gynecology, and that's actually where I'm currently working, because the wonderful thing is that 
the Royal Free ITU has, from what I've heard, only about two coronavirus positive patients currently. So a lot of us have been redeployed to other departments and I have been redeployed to obstetrics and gynecology, which I'm very passionate about. And to some extent, that's very nice because unfortunately the mortality on ITU is quite high. So I did see a lot of patients passing away. And now on obstetrics, I'm seeing a lot of babies being born. So I'm going from one extreme of life to the other extreme of life, which is quite nice. So something to celebrate. And just tell me, if you will, uh, uh, about your your graduation ceremony on Zoom, because I this, this is a this is a wonderful story. How did you graduate on Zoom, Sophie? Yes. Um, so we were supposed to have a graduation at Royal Festival Hall in July, as the medical school has ha- has done for many, many years in the past. But it soon became apparent that that wasn't going to be possible. So that ceremony got cancelled. And I think a lot of us were expecting that nothing would happen. But then the medical school announced that they would do a Zoom graduation um, where we had to make our own gowns and make our own hats. And we would all have our video cameras on. And it was officiated by Will Coppola, who works for the medical school. And it was just a link that we could send to friends and family to watch along. It was certainly a concept that I'd never imagined would happen before, but it was a fun day and it just required a little bit of creativity. I decorated my house and made it look like a graduation hall. I used a cereal box to make my hat and a bin bag to make my gown. And I think the creativity of it all was quite fun and certainly, again, very memorable. Wonderful. I think we ought to put those items in the UCL uh, Museum the graduation definitely uh, definitely capes i saw your cape a bin bag cape it was fantastic yeah. uh, finally to you both if you went back to the start of lockdown would you make the same choice again david for, for me without a doubt without a doubt actually so uh, lockdown it was it was a mix of clinical service when required and then and then my vice provost role trying to help release staff to, to what was rather grandly called the national effort. So releasing staff, equipment, PCR machines, PPE, etc. And so it was a mix between the two. And uh, if I look back, the highlight, without any doubt, was the clinical service. It's the, it's the bit that I will remember forever. Sophie, how about you? Yes, same answer for me, really. I'd absolutely do it all again. It was a very emotional time for me. It was difficult to see it all. But again, just very memorable wonderful to work together with so many other healthcare professionals. And I just learned so much. Um, I learned so much about the hospital environment. I learned so much about communication and teamwork. And I sometimes feel guilty almost for saying that it was a memorable, enjoyable time, because of course, the, the nation was struck with something so absolutely horrible. But from a professional development perspective and a learning perspective, I would say that I'm sure it will be one of the times of my career that I always remember and that I take many things from for the years to come. And I agree with that. So if you just want add one thing, because I went back to the wards to help um, on the CPAP unit, now just closed actually, because as Sophie's just said, there's virtually no coronavirus uh, coming into UCH at, at the moment. And actually going back and doing ward rounds of people who are now recovering, people who've been desperately, desperately sick, was almost a huge anticlimax compared with the peak uh, the adrenaline surge, the rush, the, the excitement, the terror uh, of those uh, of those um, days across the Easter weekend. And David, will this experience, because we, we've, we've seen so much that has become the new normal, change that took place 
that would perhaps normally have taken, I don't know, three to five years, take place in three weeks. How will this experience of coronavirus change the medical curriculum? That's a really, really good point. And, and it, the changes were extraordinary. So if I give you some, a couple of, of facts, so the, the 80% of consultations in hospital care are actually done face to face. Overnight or over one or two days, 80% went to online. I mean, people have been trying to do that for years, and it happened almost overnight, given the, given the crisis. Uh, you heard about the CPAP device. We had that approved in 24 hours by the MHRA, approval, a process that would normally take months, if, if not years. The Health Regulatory Authority were approving clinical trials in a day to get things through. So, so, so when we look back, you say these were really extraordinary times, and the can-do mentality was just something wonderful. And we have to keep that. We have to keep that. We can't go back to the old treacle in the NHS of everything taking ages and lots of people saying no to things. So I think we have to celebrate some of those, those, those changes that we introduced or things that were done at, at pace and try and retain those as we go forward. Great. Thank you very much. Now, one thing I'd just like to add, if, if I may, is just, just to thank Sophie and all the medical students who, who took a deep breath and did exactly what Sophie's done, actually. It was a huge testament to their courage and to their training that they put themselves forward to do this. So, so can I just say thank you to all of them? Well, I'm delighted to have been able to celebrate both of you and in absentia, Abdul too, because I think that you've done a remarkable thing for which not only are so many patients and their families grateful, but uh, actually, it just makes all of the UCL community so proud to be uh, part of this. So you've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. The episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support for the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the lovely Carys Bradley. Our guests today were Professor David Lomax, Dr Sophie Brack, and in absentia, Abdul Elmi. If you'd like to hear any more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus, where you can also fill out our survey. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. It's been great to be with you today and I hope to be with you again very soon. Bye for now.